Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 3rd, 2010. Less than half a year left. I can't believe it's August already. Seems like every time I go around the track, things speed up. Creeping decrepitude has uh, gone from creeping to a brisk walk. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Lots of dangerous ideas out there. And the reason why they're dangerous is because Jesus, when he talks, when when his disciples asked him about what will be the signs of the closing of the end of the age, of course, they kind of, they thought that that had also to do with the fact that the temple would be destroyed. Uh, But Jesus warns, make sure that no one deceives you. Jesus assumes that there is a such thing as uh, truth and error, as sound doctrine and deception, as those who are preaching and teaching the truth regarding God and those, well, they're not, those who are uh, deceiving you. There's false Christs, false prophets. There's, uh, and when it comes to false Christ, that's kind of an interesting phrase. False anointed ones is, a, is, a, is another valid translation of that uh, verse. And, uh, you know, people claiming to be, you know, especially anointed of God, and they're not. And uh, Satan, keep in mind, Satan has, well, the world in his back pocket. Um, so the, the, I don't think Satan needs to spend an, a lot of time, you know, making sure the world is evil. Because, well, we do that all by ourselves just fine and dandy and uh so satan uh, is spends it seems that an inordinate amount of time trying to mask his errors and find new ways new inroads into the tur- into the church to teach falsehood as a result of it we are we are called by scripture by god himself to be ever vigilant and to always test what people say in the name of god to the word of god knowing that uh the scriptures have are the ones who you know, are the ones the scriptures t- teach us that it's Satan's um, henchmen who masquerade as angels of light and as wolves in sheep's clothing. These, this is not a concept uh, that has its origin in the thoughts of men. This is how God, the Holy Spirit, has described Satan's agents. 
And so that being the case, um, it doesn't matter that we uh, live in an era where political correctness reigns and it's just not a popular thing to do. Uh, we still are called to do the unpopular thing and to compare what's going on out there and and take people to task, and especially if they're Christian pastors, and, and um, well, unpack what they're teaching to see if it squares with Scripture. If it doesn't, well, then we need to call them to repentance and to be forgiven uh, for their false teaching and doctrine and to, you know, shape up, straighten up, fly right. <laughs> if they're a pastor, you know, uh, you understand what I'm saying. And if not, we, we thank God for the proclamation of the gospel wherever we hear it. Keep in mind that... Um, uh, I am I am no ecumenicist. However, um, I I have I have no um, let's how do I put this? Um, uh, I I absolutely believe that there's only one church. Yes, it's true. There there you're either you're either in or you're out. You either trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or you don't. You either are truly regenerated and converted. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, or you, you, you haven't been converted and you're unregenerate and you're, uh, and you're still lost, you know, and that being the case, um, you know, even though I'm a confessional Lutheran, by the way, I think confessional Lutheranism correctly has a sound biblical doctrine, uh, nailed down pretty tight. And, uh, you know, that, you know, that being said, uh, there are Christians outside of Lutheranism, and there are non-Christians inside of Lutheranism. So we we gotta <laughs> you gotta always gotta test, test, test. That's what we do here, discernment. Anyway, I feel like I'm just rambling on at the moment. Maybe I've run out of steam. Maybe it may... <sighs> no. <laughs> okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We did not get to finish uh, what I wanted to uh, do yesterday. And uh, didn't get an opportunity to read this Jim Wallace uh, piece, um, uh, he, who cl- who calls himself a Christian leader for social change, and uh, we're going to be taking a look at that uh, today in an uh, article entitled "New Economy, New Energy: uh, Lessons from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount." I had no idea that the Sermon on the Mount was about n- new economic models and uh, new energy and things like that. I um, can't wait to see what Jim Wallace has to say about this. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, we're going to uh, spend a little bit of time um, listening to some things. Uh, last week, I opened up a, a new um, wing in the Museum of Idolatry, and the name of this new wing is entitled Relevancy Fail. Yeah, it's called Relevancy Fail. And the reason it's called Relevancy Fail is because uh, there's a whole lot of churches out there that um, strive to be relevant. And so they're aping the world. They're aping pop culture. They're, and um, And there's just a whole bunch of stuff that I've been sitting on. Uh, that I've been collecting over the years that uh, didn't quite know where to put it because it's just the chops are just not there. So let's, let's put it that way. And so I've come up with a new wing of the Museum of Idolatry. By the way, you can uh, visit the Museum of, of Idolatry at a littleleaven.com. And uh, so relevancy fail is uh, are those exhibits for churches who have attempted to uh, to be relevant and have come woefully short, and as a result of it, they've ended up looking like um, 
cheap Chinese knockoffs of uh, name brands, if you know what I'm yeah, – you know what I'm talking about? I mean, have you ever been in one of those gadget gizmo electronic shops and you got all these bizarre off-name brands – and the guy behind the counter says, "Oh, this is just like a Sony. It'll, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it, it has this name brand, but it's got Sony guts. You know, it's got the Sony uh, uh, silicon inside of there. You know, it, really. And so, and it's only two dollars, right? Yeah. No, normally this is five thousand dollars, but we sell it for you for two, for two dollars. So you can't, you can't beat the price. You get home." And, uh, you know, you plug the thing in, and there's a puff of smoke and the smell of ozone. And you realize, um, yeah, um, this thing didn't have Sony guts. It's, you know, I don't know what this thing was. I, I, I must sadly confess that even I have succumbed to sales pitches by guys in shady electronic stores in places like New York City and other places um, that uh, were hawking, well, substandard um, electronics and um, and uh, realized that the only thing I did was waste my money. Well, when uh, a church um, attempts to be relevant and they don't pull it off, they're pretty much, well, a third-rate um, off-brand electronics Chinese knockoff, and it's um, not good. So we're going to be listening to um, a, <laughs> a Church by the Glades. I recently had a sermon series uh, which gave them the opportunity to play Van Halen's Jump uh, during the ch church service. And um, we're going to listen in to um, the praise band from Church by the Glades, which, by the way, is uh, the church that uh, is going. You know, we're going to be reviewing a sermon series. Now, we're not going to do the whole series in one day. Over the next couple of days, two to three days, we're going to be listening to um, most of this sermon series entitled Domination from Church by the Glades down there in Florida. And um, David Hughes is the uh, pastor. And so, it just, so I thought this would just fit perfectly. We're going to listen to their rendition of Jump. And, uh, and then today we're going to um, uh, play um, audio f from a praise song um, that uh, conjures up mental pictures of vomiting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's um, the name of the uh, praise song is I Think I'm Going to Throw Up. Oh, it's, uh, it's just reverent as they get. I mean, this is like, you know, the, you see... When you talk about you know hymns and classic praise songs and things like that, you've got like a mighty fortress is our God, Thy strong word. Um, you know you, you got Saint Patrick's song uh, uh, about the Trinity, and then you've got right below that. I mean, next in the list is I think I'm going to throw up. I, I wish I was making this up, but uh, we're going to be listening to uh, some of that today, and. Um, just you know asking the question is is this really what we should be teaching our children when it comes to praising uh the lord and then i got a christian post story today a former atheist uh claims that christianity really does make sense and so we've got a story of a of a rational thinker uh you know college professorial type who who has uh repented and trusted in christ for the forgiveness of sins and uh, and we'll be listen. Uh, I'll be reading a story about uh, her, uh, basically journey from atheism to Christianity, which I think is a, a rather interesting thing to be passing along. 
And then uh, if we get time today, uh, the, the, I've got a, a news story from The Telegraph in the U.K. A Oxford University lecturer is being discriminated against after converting to Christianity. And uh, so let's uh, will we, you know, tuning in to that and, uh, you know, take a look at that particular story and see what's going on there in the U.K. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into the program proper. So feel free to... Um, Pull up a chair, make yourself comfortable, kick your feet up, relax. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, though, that the Bible does have a a prohibition when it comes to that particular gift. And that prohibition uh, draws the line at drunkenness. So uh, you don't want to over-imbibe when it comes to enjoying that gift from God. And, of course, if you want to wear fuzzy bunny slippers, uh, the weather must be the, uh, the thing that decides whether or not you'll be doing that. They do enhance your listener experience i did want to let you know that and so with that we're going to dive into the program and our first uh, i don't have um, uh segue music for this but i'll just segue nonetheless um talking i've been talking here about relevancy fails uh church by the glades um down there in florida uh by the way they're there's we're reviewing one of their sermons today um they they recently did a cover of um van halen's um, 1980, was it 82 classic, um, jump 84, 1984. I, I, I think this through here. And, um, the, the only thing I can describe this is as, as a complete utter, and utter relevancy fail, which kind of begs the question, if you're going to go out of your way to uh, be relevant, then don't you think that you ought to, um, do it right instead of looking like a cheap Chinese knockoff that uh, you should at least uh, only attempt relevancy if your people have the chops to pull it off. Uh, listen in and see if uh, you think Simon Cowell should be uh, brought in to uh, uh, hush these people up. H- here we go. Timing's off. I thought it was almost impossible for somebody to sing worse than David Lee Roth. <laughs> yeah, the uh, lead singer for this uh, praise band from Church by the Glade. <laughs> wow, he makes uh, David Lee Roth sound like a opera singer. Maybe just My ears are bleeding. Oh, can't you see me standing here? I got my back. I think that we would that would qualify as pitchy. Isn't that the uh, the the term used on American Idol?
You know, this reminds me. Um, I remember one time watching an interview with Bono from YouTube, and he was complaining, uh, and he had a valid critique of um, some of the artists in the so-called Christian uh, rock and roll, Christian music scene, and. Um, he made a point once that uh, there are folks out there that uh, that will get up in front of a stage and say that God inspired them to write and record a, this particular song or a particular song, and then they proceed to perform the song that God inspired them to um, write and sing, and it's just awful. Uh, Bono, um, I think, made a good point. He said, "There's no way that God inspired that, and just no, because no, God doesn't inspire music that just stinks." You know what's funny? I lived through the '80s, and um, you know, uh, Van ha- Van Halen was like on the not approved list um, when I was growing up. Um, there was lists. See, I attended a Christian high school, uh, Marinantha High School. It, it used to be in Santa Madre, California. Now it's in Pasadena. And um, I, when I was uh, at Marinantha High School, um, Van Halen was uh, near the top of the list of bands we weren't supposed to listen to. And um, you know, David Lee Roth, um, let's just – the word libido comes to mind when I think of David Lee Roth. Um, yeah, um, it's kind of awkward for me to be seeing a church's praise band during a church service um, performing this poorly done um, rendition of Van Halen's Jump. And seeing the fact that these kids were, I mean, they probably weren't even in diapers when the uh, um, song was originally recorded. And, and well... Um, yeah, Van Halen, not known for Christian virtues. Just kind of awkward for me to hear this being performed in a church. You say you don't know, oh, you don't know until you begin. So can't you see me standing here? I got my back against a regular machine. I, you know, I, I, I mean, are people supposed to raise their hands and praise the Lord while Van Halen's jump is being performed? I don't understand its function in the church service. The worst that you see. Yeah, well, they did. Might as well jump. Jump. Go ahead and jump. Jump. By the way, if you want to see this, this is at the uh, Museum of Idolatry. And it's currently on the front page, Van Halen's Jump, poorly performed by church band. Yeah, this, they have, this is kind of like a music video version. These, these guys have jumped into a pool and they're playing their instruments underwater. Poorly at that. 
Yeah, did I mention that it was poorly recorded? Yeah, that would be the people in the congregation applauding the uh, performance of Van Halen's Jump. Why didn't they do Panama? How about Hot for Teacher? I mean, you know, that's relevant. Step away from the ledge, son. You don't want to jump. Get it in, jump, jump. Now, I understand it's your career's all washed up and that you can't possibly ever become a, a real MTV rock star, and this is the closest thing that you can come to that is, um, well, you know, fronting a praise band at a seeker-driven, pabulum-driven church. So there it was in its entirety. I, I think they're trying to take after uh, Granger Community Church and uh, New Spring. I mean, the, both congregations are well known for uh, playing secular cover songs during church. Uh, could somebody please explain to me what, again, th the secular cover songs, what's their function there at church i mean this is just pure entertainment and um well <laughs> it's entertainment if you're deaf <sighs> anyway so moving along I, I have this simple question i'd like to ask you all um when when you praise the lord is vomit the thing that normally comes to your mind well it, not, it doesn't actually come to mind because i don't really enjoy worshiping at the porcelain altar in fact, uh, the the last few times I've done that over the years, it's been painful and rather memories I try to erase from my mind. And so, um, you know, it, in fact, vomiting is such an unpleasant experience that I don't normally sing songs that, well, unite vomiting in my mind with God. Well, <laughs> that's okay. There's a brand new uh, praise... Um, a CD available entitled Crazy Praise Volume 3. And Crazy Praise Volume 3 has this wonderful, uh, reverent ditty uh, that you can teach your children um, when it comes to praising God. Uh, listen in. As, uh, the name, the, by the way, the name of this praise song is I Think I'm Going to Throw Up. Now, i got to mention, this is a 7-Eleven song. And what we mean by that, a 7-Eleven song is one where you have roughly about seven words and you repeat them 11 times. Uh, so once you first, once you hear the first few words, you're going to know how pretty much most of the song is going to go. I'm 
simple question here do you think muslims teach their children these types of songs yeah islam doesn't strike me as a religion that teaches um sacrilegious mockery uh to their children I just my question is why on earth would anyone want to teach their children a quote praise song that really is designed to pretty much elicit giggles and silliness out of children because, you know, kids, you know, they they hear particular words and phrases and uh, they think that's silly and funny. <laughs> he said, throw up. It's kind of like a bad episode of Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, you remember, th- remember those two guys? <laughs> he said, throw up. All right, it gets better. Uh, This is verse number two, if you could even call it a verse. It's kind of like a mini-verse. I mean, this is... uh, Aside from the uh, vomiting, this is also bad theology, but hang on. I think I'm gonna hurl my sins out the door. Yeah, you see, because um, we don't hurl our sins out the door. Our sins were atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I guess. I mean, is this teaching children in churches to be reverent and to really understand the true and proper fear of God? Is this even teaching sound doctrine when it comes to uh, the atonement? This is a crazy praise song. So so we should be hearing something that praises. But uh, who's the subject of these uh, 7-Eleven sentences? I think I'm going to hurl. I think I'm going to throw up. This song is about me hurling and throwing up, which is I am feeling like I'm about ready to do. Yeah, mindlessness, too. <laughs> he said hurl. hurl, my sins out the door. And believe it or not, there's another mini-verse here. Here it comes. Yeah, just take it up a higher notch uh, on the... Uh, Musically and repeat, I think I'm gonna throw up my hands to the Lord. Um, yeah, throw up and hurl. That's that's the the and those are the, all the lyrics. By the way, I think I'm gonna throw up my hands to the Lord. I think I'm gonna hurl my sins out the door. That's the entire 
song. Um, again, I, you know, I, I just asked the question. Do you think Muslims teach their children to sing songs like this to Allah? Now, I don't know if Muslims even sing hymns. I, I, I don't know that much about the religion, at least in their practices, to be able to come to some kind of conclusion. I know that some guy climbs to the top of the minarets and uh, shouts, uh, you know, Ahula Akbar or something to that effect, you know, telling, calling people to prayer five times a day. But um, but do you think that a Muslim would be, I mean, they don't even allow people to make cartoons depicting the prophet Muhammad. You know, um, which kind of leads to the question. I mean, <clears throat> I know I, I mentioned I was going to talk about this, and I ended up not talking about it. This, uh, this, there's this guy down in uh, Florida, some wacko pastor who's on 9/11 is going to have burn a Quran day, and uh, you know there are people in the Muslim community who are just up in arms. You know this is terrible. You know how dare they? You know basically uh, mock, blaspheme, to attack uh, Allah like this, and they're incensed, right? You know, so here you got this attack against Islam from a Christian. Uh, you know, by the way, I don't recommend this tact. I I think this is just absolutely the wrong way to uh, reach out to your Muslim neighbors and let them know that Christ died for their sins and calls them to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I, I free speech and everything else aside, I I think it's a terrible idea. But uh, you know, if uh, if a Christian were to write a praise song about Allah. And use these words. I think I'm going to throw up my hands to Allah. I think I'm going to hurl, you know, you know, Allah out the door. I, something I don't just like that. This would make like national news as some kind of you know religious fighting that's going on. Some you know one religion attacking another, and this is just terrible. And the things did. in Christianity, though, we. We don't need people outside of uh, of the church attacking God and and basically demeaning him, uh, treating him crassly, blaspheming him, and things like that. No, we have that going on inside of our own churches and being you know with products being sold in Christian bookstores. Yeah, I think I'm gonna hurl. I don't think there would be a Muslim. I don't think a Muslim would survive a day. Uh, in any Muslim nation, if he did anything like this, why is it that we're putting up with and promoting and selling products like this that dishonor the one true God, the God that we worship, that teach disrespect and mockery to our children? Have we lost our minds? I, I, I'm convinced that Many people in the Christian church are completely out of their, their bunkers. They're stark raving mad. You know, uh, anyway, I think I've <clears throat> done that one to death, and I'm sure some of you are nauseated after listening to that. I apologize, but, you know, the question needs to be asked. Why is it that we're putting up with this, this stuff and we're supporting it with our own money? If a Muslim were to write this, we would see it as an attack against the Christian faith. Why is it that when a so-called Christian puts this together and puts it together in, you know, in a product that can be purchased at a Christian uh, bookstore, that we don't see it as an attack against Christianity? It is. It is an attack by, by demeaning God and teaching false doctrine to our children and teaching them not to fear, love, and trust in God and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, 
basically treat God like just some cheap vomit joke. Oh, it just is upsetting. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to go hurl. Um, you can uh, email me. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. face it. It's a visual age, and the old Bible is impractical and irrelevant, but that shouldn't hamper your spiritual growth. If you're tired of all those words like atonement, sin, justification, and all that deep stuff about God, look no further. Announcing The Massage, a new Bible version that puts you and your personal needs central. Written in a style familiar to readers of the National Enquirer, The Massage concentrates on making you feel good rather than filling your head with all those doctrines that clutter the older Bibles and disrupt unity. So if you've lost that loving feeling, pick up your copy of The Massage today. It's available at your local Jesus and Me stores and at airport terminals worldwide. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. 
If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, you don't teach your children reverence toward God by being irreverent. Yeah, it seems self-explanatory. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by uh, clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here. From the Huffington Post, new economy, new energy, lessons from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Okay, uh, <clears throat> um, this is um, this is by Jim Wallace, uh, social justice um, guru extraordinaire. Supposedly, Matthew chapter seven, verse twenty-four through 27 says something about financial our financial crisis oil dependence and renewable energy i had no idea and that's no no i just did not know this so it's with that that um i am excited to read this um op-ed piece uh, in the religion section of the huffington post by jim wallace um by the way the verse uh, the verses in question read <clears throat> from the sermon on the mount quote Uh, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on 
rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And it was it was great in its falling. Okay. The great crash, if you would. All right, so that's the uh, <clears throat> the portion of the Bible that makes up the meditation or op-ed piece written by Jim Wallace. And apparently this is all about oil dependence, renewable energy, and economic um, models. <clears throat> Jim Wallace writes, he says, we live in a culture that is obsessed with the new, the different, the cutting edge. Countless hours are consumed with discussing what was painted by Lindsay Lohan uh, on Lindsay Lohan's fingernails during her most recent court appearance and countless more spent uh, on the virtues and vices displayed by LeBron James's choice to leave Cleveland. Special praise is given to these commentators who can tie these celebrity happenings into commentary on the Democrats' chances in the 2010 elections. But by next week, these stories are all but forgotten, and we're on to the next celebrity mishap or moral shortcomings of professional athletes. One of the things that I love about the Christian tradition, and it's true of many religious traditions, is that it is part of our DNA to spend a lot of time thinking about things that are very old. Each week at church, we open the scriptures together and think about, talk about, and meditate on very old stories and commentary on life and culture and even politics. It is a recognition that while the world is changing at an alarming rate, there is much that always stays the same. My faith gives me hope that the world can continue to become a better place. Okay. In the midst of uh, your internet browsing and link clicking, take a second to slow down and consider some of the wisdom with me in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, delivered during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The, the house that, the Wall, that Wall Street has built has fallen, and great was its fall. President Obama alluded to Jesus in his speech at Georgetown University, marking the occasion of his 100th day in office, quote, we cannot rebuild this economy on the same pile of sand. We must build our house upon a rock. We must lay a new foundation for growth and prosperity, a foundation that will move us from an era of borrow and spend to one where we save and invest, where we consume less at home and spend more and send more exports abroad. Huh? Um... <laughs> So Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, the, uh, the house that Wall Street built has fallen. And um, now we need to not rebuild our house on borrow and spend, but save and invest. <clears throat> um, by the way, um, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24. Four through 27 are red letters. Um, let me reread verse 24. Jesus speaking says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be a wise man who built his house on rock. Where can I find the words of Jesus? Where can I, well, Jesus is God in human flesh. So where can I find the words of God? And act on them so that I can be like a wise man who built him, my house on a rock. Um, 
Yeah, see, here, here's the deal. Um, this isn't about Wall Street. This isn't about any house that Wall Street built or anything like that. Um, this is, a, in a very real way, a, a call to repentance and uh, and works that are in keeping with that repentance. Um, I don't care how many times you meditate on Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. If your meditation causes you to think about Wall Street in the house that Wall Street built and to think about politics and the economy and renewable energy and things like that, um, I think you're missing the point. Jesus wasn't referring to any of those things, and this is a complete misuse of God's word. And by the way, should, do I dare point out the fact that Obama, who says that we can't lay a foundation on borrow and spend, is doing that exact thing? Um, you know, anyone taking a look lately at uh, what the U.S. national debt is? Yeah, and how much it's gone up since Obama's taken office. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into politics, but I just kind of find that funny. Um, Jim Wallace continues. He says, economists argue over whether the Great Recession is technically over, but in reality, our deep, deep economic crisis continues. Uh, people continue to lose jobs. Houses are foreclosed. Savings are destroyed and future hopes are dashed. We are in the midst of a fundamental shift in which the old foundations have shown to be nothing but the shifting sands of speculation, building a new economy on more and endless consumerism and casino-like financial risk-taking would not be new at all. It would be it would neg neglect the old wisdom of not building on a foundation of sand. What? I got a good response a few weeks ago when I spoke uh, to top executives at a business school summer conference on leadership. I asked them to consider what it would mean to build a new economy, not on an ethic of endless growth, but rather on an ethic of sustainability. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is communism. Uh, more rock than sand. We are experiencing more uh, a moral deficit that is increasingly apparent and a growing hunger to recover former values and not just on Wall Street. The house that Big Oil built has fallen, too, and great was its fall. For the sake of our children and the planet, oil cannot be the foundation upon which we build our future. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, talk about the heresy two-step. I mean, here, this is supposed... What does this at all have to do with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Nothing! And there's people who are reading this going, Oh, wow, this is deep spiritual meditation that Jim Wallace is brought to us and caused us to meditate and to think on scripture in such a new and relevant way. He completely mangled it. Jesus says, put these words of mine into action. Oh. What's the point? Anyway, so there you have it. There's Jim Wallace's uh, piece that we didn't get to yesterday. <sighs> Just made me want to grab my hair and pull it out and scream. While hurling and, and you know throwing up, um, uh, from the Christian Post, Lillian Kwan uh, has written an article entitled "Former Atheist Says Christianity Really Does Make Sense." Um, uh, Holly Ordway was a highly educated atheist who thought Christianity was a historical curiosity or a blemish on modern civilization, or maybe even both. Smart people don't become Christians, she thought. 
Her worldview, however, began to change at age 31. She recounts her journey from atheism to Christianity in the recently released book, Not God's Type, A Rational Academic Finds a Radical Faith. Quote, It's no light matter to meet God after having denied him all of one's life, she writes in the book. Coming to him was only the beginning. I can point to a day and a time and a place of my conversion, and yet since then I have come to understand that he calls me to a fresh conversation every day. Ordway, a professor of English and literature at a San Diego area community college, wasn't raised in any religious faith. She never said a prayer in her life, and she never went to a church service. Her exposure to Christianity while growing up was minimal, and her few encounters with Christians involved tele-evangelists or hellfire and damnation preachers. Quote, Religion seemed like a story that people told themselves, and I had no evidence to the contrary, she said in an interview with Biola University, where she currently is studying for her second master's degree in Christian apologetics. To her, the Bible was a collection of folktales and myths, no different than the stories of Zeus or Cinderella. Quote, I was a college professor, logical, intellectual, rational, and atheist, she writes. Though she knew next to nothing about Christianity, she began to mock Christians and to belittle their faith, intelligence, and character. It was fun to consider myself superior to the unenlightened, superstitious masses and to make snide comments about Christians, Ordway writes. She was convinced that faith was, by definition, irrational. Now, i got to point something out here. Um, faith is not by definition irrational. However, there are forces within the visible Christian church who have embraced irrationalism in order to redefine the faith to make it compatible with post-modernity. But that's not what she's talking about here. Evangelical even invitations to come to Jesus and to get eternal life sounded like believing something irrational on demand to get a prize. I thought I knew exactly what faith was, and so I declined to look further, she writes, or perhaps I was afraid that there was more to it than I was willing to credit, but I didn't want to deal with that. Easier by far to uh, read only books by atheists that told me what I wanted to hear, that I was much smarter and intellectually honest and morally superior than the poor, deluded Christians. I have built myself a fortress of atheism, secure against any attack by irrational faith, and I lived in it alone. Ordway wasn't looking for God. She didn't believe he existed but she began to be drawn to matters of faith. One reason for her interest, she explains, is that her naturalistic worldview was inadequate to explain the nature of reality in a coherent way. It could not explain the origin of the universe, nor could it explain morality. By the way, from an apologetics point of view, these are more philosophical arguments, and but and they're good to have uh, these arrows in your quiver, your apologetics quiver, you know, to bring these things out. But again, keep in mind, apologetics can only tackle um, objections to the Christian faith, and it's not synonymous with the gospel. The goal of apologetics is to give a reasoned defense for the Christian faith, so that you can preach the gospel. If you win in a debate against an atheist regarding theism, the, the existence of God, you still they are still not in the kingdom because they haven't repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That comes only through the preaching of the gospel. So you need to, you know, take your you know, take that, you know, your apologetics arguments there and move them beyond uh the the intellectual to 
the call to faith. Okay. Anyway, let's see here. But this is, it's important. You know, she's right in that materialism, naturalistic, uh, naturalistic materialism cannot adequately explain the nature of reality in a coherent way. And it cannot explain the origin of the universe, nor can explain it explain morality. Morality doesn't make any sense uh, without God. None whatsoever. I mean, it's basically just a matter of opinion and uh, making sure that 51% of the people in power are the ones dictating what's correct and and moral at the time. I continue, though. Quote, on the other hand, the theistic worldview was both consistent and, and powerfully explanatory. It offered a convincing, rationally consistent and logical explanation for everything that the naturalistic worldview explained, plus all the things that the naturalistic worldview couldn't. After a series of conversations with a matter, uh, with a mentor, and exposure to the writings of authors like J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, Ordway went from denying God to committing herself to Christ. We continue. I, quote, I was startled to find that Christian theism had significantly better explanatory power than atheistic naturalism in terms of explaining why the world is the way it is and according to my own experiences within it. She recounted, according to a Biola University, quote, learning more about the incarnation and about God and the most holy trinity has further reinforced my confidence that Christianity really does make sense of the world and in a way that no other worldview does. Now, I want to point this out. Um, do you think that churches that don't take the time to really, truly teach the depth of Christianity are capable of carrying water in such a way that, uh, that it, you know, that an atheist would be called to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It, it, what she's describing here in her journey are some of the very strong treasures that Christianity has and possesses and ought to be proclaiming and teaching all Christians uh, the depth of. Not just people who are involved in an MA and a master's degree in apologetics, but stuff that really needs to be proclaimed and taught from Christian pulpits, because this is the treasure of Christianity. These great, great truths uh, that 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 go with the the Christian faith, and yet so many pastors can care less about these treasures. And what they've done is they've reduced Christianity. Uh, down to basically just uh, moral tips or tips for how to have a happier life. I mean, this is a crime. I mean, here we've got gold in the vault. I mean, real bona fide gold treasure. And the only thing they can bring out is cheap Chinese knockoffs. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Let me continue. She found that that St. Paul's forthright declaration that Christianity is based on the historical witnessed events of Christ's death and resurrection, that theology and philosophy offered real answers to her questions and weren't an appeal to blind faith, and that, quote, the history of the church did not conform to her image of the Christian faith as self-serving, politically useful fiction. Her intellectual pride was broken, and she was humbled by God's goodness as she began to see herself as a sinner. Quote, I don't believe because I like the idea and I want it to be true. I don't believe because I think Christianity makes sense intellectually, although that was a necessary foundation to my faith. In fact, I wouldn't say that I believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or that I believe I have a personal relationship with him. I would say that I know these things to be true, the former atheist emphatically stated in a 2007 blog entry. 
Ordway currently attends St. Michael's by the Sea in Southern California, where she says she has grown in her Christian faith. She's hoping her book will help Christians who may be familiar with the ideas that atheists believe but not understand what it's like to believe those things in their in their evangelism. Offered by uh, offering some advice to those who approach atheists, she said, "Really, it doesn't matter whether we like Christianity or not. What matters is that it is true." That approach may not resonate with everyone, but it was what opened the door for me. More discipleship is critical, she said. I think one of the central elements of my own discipleship so far has been my pastor's focus on the cross, she said in a Biola interview. Quote, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's terribly painful to give up one's sins and self-will, to allow one's old self to be crucified along with Christ. And I have been very grateful to my pastor who acknowledges how hard and painful it can be along this Christian journey. But the way of the cross is also the only way of life and peace. Good. That's a great article and some great profound stuff there. Again, I ask the question, would the Christianity that's being preached at, at your local megachurch be compelling to an atheist? Or would it just be seen as a self-serving fiction to make your life better? Something to keep in mind. Something to keep in mind. All right, one more article here. Oxford University lecturer discriminated against after converting to Christianity. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Pastor Charmley, this is uh, your department. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, wasn't Oxford University originally set up um, to offer religious education uh, for men seeking uh, leadership in the uh, church? You know, pastoral positions and things like that. <clears throat> Just a historical question that I thought I'd throw out there. A lecturer at Oxford University Center for Jewish Studies claims colleagues discriminated against her after she converted to Christianity. Dr. Tali Argov says she was overlooked for promotion, stripped of her privileges, and cold-shouldered at social gatherings. She says staff wanted to vet her lectures to make sure as a Christian she would not criticize Israel. Wow. Eventually, she claimed she was made redundant from her post at the prestigious Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies, despite offering to take on new roles. Quote, is my belief that following, firstly, the conversion of my husband and then the conversion of myself, the treatment which I received as an employee of the uh, respondents was very different, and a number of incidents occurred which led me to believe that I was being discriminated against, Dr. Argov told Reading Employment Tribunal hearing this week. Dr. Argov told the hearing where she is claiming unfair dismissal and discrimination on the grounds of religion or belief that her that she and her husband, Iran, were raised in the Jewish faith and lived in Israel until she was offered a place at Bra, uh, Brasenos College, Oxford, to write a doctoral thesis. They moved to England in 1996, and in 2000, uh, Dr. Argov, then studying for a Ph.D. at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, was offered the full-time post of Lector of Modern Hebrew at the Oxford Center for Hebrew and Jewish studies. Uh, the center is independent, but its students are part of the traditional Oxford College system. Dr. Argov said she was welcomed and appreciated, but the honeymoon ended after her husband was baptized into the Church of England in 2005, after which time all those kind, heartwarming gestures disappeared overnight, and she was considered guilty by association. Dr. Argov also converted from Judaism to Anglicanism in January 2008, having become actively engaged with St. Mary Magdalene Church in the center of Oxford, but did not dare to tell her parents until after the event. Quote, it's very rare for an Israeli Jew to convert to Christianity, and I was aware that not only 
would this be frowned upon? But many Jews would believe uh, I was a traitor who had betrayed the faith. Dr. Argov said her conversion was not met with much understanding in the Jewish community and that groups of colleagues started looking at me strangely and would fall silent when she approached. She told the five-day hearing on Monday that she applied for a lectureship post but was told by a fellow at the center, don't bother, you'll be kicked on your kicked on the teeth. Uh, the Post allegedly went on to a less well-qualified candidate. Dr. Argov said she was later humiliated when she was uh, the only full-time member of the staff left out of a photo shoot for a glossy promotional brochure. Yikes. Uh, later, she was told she could no longer use her office. She had her uh, pigeonhole for letters removed and was given a lesser title on her university ID card, meaning that she lost her email account and library admittance, although these were later reinstated. Dr. Argov claims she was sidelined by not being invited to a fundraising event in London. Although she and her husband were allowed to attend, they were made to feel extremely uncomfortable. Now, here's the question I have. Okay, now, stories like this are, are... They've happened throughout the history of, you know, history uh, from the time Christianity began until now. People who've been persecuted, people who have been um, martyred even uh, for their confession of of Christ. Do you think that um, this story of uh, of the uh, discrimination and persecution that Dr. Argov has experienced after her conversion from uh, uh, Judaism to Christianity that um, that uh, Joel Osteen would have appeal to her, you know, that Christianity is all about having your best life now. In fact, I think this is a perfect example of how being a Christian may not and may not at all lead you to have your best life now. In fact, it may instead lead you to be persecuted, discriminated against, harshly treated, slighted, and uh, and for your name to become, well, synonymous with a four-letter cuss word. I think this is the real norm for real converts to Christianity, people who are truly regenerated and brought to the true Christian faith. They end up suffering the same way our Lord Jesus Christ suffered. See, Dr. Argov is hardly experiencing her best life now. But I think she really is experiencing the real Christian life. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We're going to do our sermon review here shortly. Uh, starting, we're going to review most of the series here on supposedly the book of Judges. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music. You have the audacity to call worship. 
Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. I'm going to do something different here, something we haven't done here, Fighting for the Faith, and that is review most of an entire sermon series. Normally what I do is I'll pick a representative sample from a sermon series and play it, and it, you pretty much get what's going on. But before I do that, I better cue up our sermon review music so that we stay with our tradition here at Fighting for the Faith. Here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Church by the Glades in uh, Coral Springs, Florida. This is the same church that uh, delighted our ears with their rendition of Van Halen's Jump earlier in the program today. 
pastor's there. His name is Pastor David Hughes. And uh, the first in the sermon series that we're going to be reviewing, the first sermon is, well, the sermon series is entitled Domination. And this is uh, the first in a four-part series on the book of Joshua. And apparently, the book of Joshua is really all about getting unstuck or divine momentum or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I know. You're, I can hear you shaking your head going, what? Yeah. In fact, the first sermon in the series is entitled Getting Unstuck, and then there's Divine Directions and almost... Anyway, here's a question I'd like you to answer. <clears throat> we read two stories today. Uh, that were, well, more than two, but two of the stories today pertain to people who had came to Christianity. One was a gal who grew up in Judaism in Israel and uh, became a, a, got her doctorate in Hebrew and was teaching at Oxford University. And after her conversion to Christianity, she was shunned and, and uh, basically p- treated very poorly by her colleagues and discriminated against. And the other was the gal who was an atheist who came to Christianity. Now, if if either of them, if this is what Christianity was presented to either of them, would they be Christians today? <clears throat> are you hearing the treasures of the Christian faith? Or are you hearing really just bad mythological... This, I mean, well, you'll have to listen for yourself, but ask, ask that question. Is what you're going to hear from Pastor Hughes really deep doctrinal biblical truths of Christianity or is it something different? I think that uh, will be the question that I think frames it just nicely. And with that, let's dive into our sermon review. Here is David Hughes, uh, Church by the Glades, Coral Springs, Florida, Domination Getting Unstuck. Welcome to another creative and encouraging teaching by Pastor David Hughes, lead pastor at Church by the Glades. For more information on Church by the Glades, including directions and service times, please visit us at www.cbglades.com. See you today. Glad you're here. If you're a guest, we honor you. We're we're so excited you're with us, and you've actually picked a great weekend. We launch a new four-week series of biblical talks called Domination. And uh, if you have your Bible, turn to the book of Joshua. Turn to the book of Joshua. I'll help you navigate and find the book of Joshua. It's Old Testament. So here's a question. What is the first book in the Old Testament? It's the book of Genesis. So start Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Go to Joshua. And we'll be in chapter 1, verse 1 of Joshua. And what is the book of Joshua about? Well, one way you can answer that question is this. It's about uh, forward progress. It's about advancing. It's <clears throat> what? It's about forward progress and advancing. That's what the book of Joshua is about. Yeah, in a minute here, I'm going to be reading what Luther wrote uh, about the book of Joshua. But let's, let's listen in a little bit more before we get to that. It's about uh, achieving a goal. It's about momentum. 
I think it's hard to overstate the importance of momentum in life. If, if you want to make progress, achieve those goals, know a degree of success and satisfaction, momentum is a big deal. I love the author John Maxwell. You might know John's stuff. John's a very popular speaker. He's a former pastor. John's actually spoken at our church way back in the day. Uh, John's a prolific and popular author. In fact, if you go to like the business section or the leadership section of Barnes & Noble's, his books are the ones that face cover out, meaning he's, he's, he's popular. Uh, John, in his book, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, by the way, you're also a confident author when your laws are irrefutable. But anyways, the irrefutable laws, he has one law called the law of the big mo. It's about the value of momentum in leadership or in life. Let me read a couple things he, he wrote about momentum or the big mo. He said, when leaders have momentum... Okay, I want to point something out here. Um, we're off topic. He says this is this is about the book of Joshua. He has made the assertion that it's about momentum and the importance of the big mo. And uh, we haven't read nothing uh, about Joshua. And if you're familiar with the story of Joshua, I mean to say that it's about momentum. I mean, um, that's like saying that Jesus's crucifixion is all about standing still. I mean, that's like to completely miss the point altogether uh, about <clears throat> what's going on here. Hang on a second here. I, I would like to read to you <clears throat> what Luther wrote regarding the, the book of Joshua. Listen to this. Just from this is Luther's uh, introduction, uh, introductory talk about you know, the book of Joshua. Joshua, however, denotes Christ because of his name and because of what he does. Joshua, by the way. Uh, that's Jesus's name. Uh, we go with Jesus's name, uh, the the Hellenized, the Greekized version of it. I know Greekized isn't a word, but uh, you get what I'm saying here. Uh, when we say we talk about Jesus, what happened is is that <clears throat> uh, Greek-speaking folks in the Mediterranean and in the Roman Empire are not Hebrew, and so the uh, Hebrew wor uh, name Yeshua. There's no, it's there's no real easy way to bring that into the Greek language, and so it it came out transliterated as Jesus, which then you know when you bring it into English, then it becomes Jesus. You get what I'm saying. So, um, however, <clears throat> the book of Joshua, Yeshua, that's Jesus's name, and so here Luther is looking at Joshua say. It says, Joshua denotes Christ because of his name and because of what he does. Although he was a servant of Moses, yet after his master's death, he leads the people in and parcels out the inheritance of the Lord. Thus, Christ, who was first made under the law, <clears throat> served it for us. Then, what it was, and then when it was ended, he established another ministry, that of the gospel, by which we are led through him into the spiritual kingdom of a conscious, joyful, and serene um, uh, existence in God where we reign forever. Joshua also fulfilled Deuteronomy uh, chapters 27 and 28 after the city of Ai was taken. Uh, there both the blessings and the curses were read before the whole people, and burnt offerings and thank offerings were made, as Moses says here. Of course, this was done that through the external show, the crude people, as I have said, might be stirred to remember the law, for people are moved by outward ceremonies more than uh, by bare words alone. Moses recounts 
No blessings here, but only cursings. Although he assigned seven tribes to blessings, it is written in Joshua that blessings uh, were also recounted. I think that the reason for this was that Moses shows himself to be the minister of sin and death through the law, which holds all under the curse. Finally, this people of the law perished through the curse. But Joshua adds blessings that he might point to Christ, who blesses all who are under the curse of the law and yearn for him on account of Christ, Judah is classified among those who ought to stand forth to receive a blessing because he, Christ, was to come from Judah. So what you have going on here in the book of Joshua is this idea that um, that you know, we're seeing salvation history being played out. We're following the scarlet thread of Christ through the history of this uh, of these Hebrew people. And as they come out of Egypt, finally out of their wilderness wanderings into the promised land, it's Yeshua, that means Yahweh saves, who leads them into the promised land. And, the very, and this all points to Christ, who is our salvation, who is Yeshua, and he, not the law, not Moses, brings us into the kingdom of God. And leads us. So, I mean, there's such rich, deep stuff to be mined here that, that talk about law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance, the forgiveness of sins. It's all in there. And you and it's not hard to tease out how this points us to Christ. OK, uh, let me read from the uh, Lutheran Study Bible, uh, talking about the blessings for readers as they read the book of Joshua. As you study the book of Joshua, consider how the Lord prepared Joshua to lead Israel. He succeeded not because he was a brilliant strategist or charismatic genius, but because he believed this book of the law. That is God's holy word. Joshua, that's Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, Joshua continually emphasizes that the Lord gave them the land according to his promise, that the Lord fulfills his word and so grants its success. Even the name Joshua is a word of promise anticipating the appearance of a later and greater leader for God's people who would give them decisive victory. Just as the Lord called Israel to remain steadfast in the physical and spiritual struggle they faced among the Canaanites, he calls us today to be spiritually steadfast. Christ won salvation for us on the cross, and through his word he continues to equip us and rally us for the challenges that we face every day. I mean, without even reading a portion of the book of Joshua, um, just reading the intro, what Luther wrote about it in the intro from the Lutheran Study Bible, um, yeah, I don't see anybody anywhere in, in Christian history. None of the scholars have said, you know what, really the, the book of Joshua is all about momentum and how we can have momentum in our lives. I mean, this guy this david hughes here i mean the, he's selling a cheap counterfeit of the book of joshua and it gets worse because as the sermon progresses you're going to hear legalistic cosmic quid pro quo talk you do this and god will do that and there's four things that well in the series you'll hear what those are but let's continue on their side people think they're geniuses they look past shortcomings. They forget about the mistakes the leaders have made. Momentum changes people's perspective. May I add, for the better. Maxwell also says about momentum, 
If you desire to do great things with your organization, or I would say, too, with your life, never overlook the power of momentum. It's truly the leader's best friend. Did you hear that? If you want to do great things with your life, apparently this is all what Christianity is about now, is uh, giving you the tips and principles and strategies and and godly insights, you know, the inside track, so that you can do great things with your life. That's not what the book of Joshua is about at all. If you can develop it, you can do almost anything. That's the power of the big mo, momentum. I want to talk about the big mo, because I think it's pivotal understanding what the book of Joshua is all about, about domination. As a group of marginalized people go from dominated to a domination, taking possession of the promised land. It's a story of God-generated momentum. See, if you've got momentum, especially divine momentum in your life, it is catalytic, it is powerful, it is profound, it will fuel your success and your satisfaction. Momentum is that big of deal. And I want to it'll <clears throat> if you have divine momentum, it'll fuel your success and satisfaction. What is David Hughes selling here? He's selling Christianity as a means for you to experience satisfaction and success in your life through understanding the divine principles of divine momentum. The book of Joshua doesn't teach that at all. Talk about that over the next few weeks because I know a lot of people who have no big mo. No big mo. I mean, they're just the stuck people. Ever meet someone who's just kind of stuck in life? So it's not we're not solving sin and the forgiveness of sins now. We're trying to help people who are stuck and don't have any momentum. Apparently that's the the reason why Christ was hanging dead on the cross, why he was beaten, flogged, scourged, had a crown of thorns pressed into his head and bled I mean so that we can, you know, get unstuck. Making no progress, they're kind of stagnant in life, they're sedentary in life, uh, they're stuck, maybe stuck in an area of life, maybe they're stuck relationally, uh, someone making the same, the same dumb relational decisions time and time again, they immerse themselves in the same kind of dysfunctional relationships time and time again, ever like a single person, like a nice, smart, single girl, dates the same kind of losers time and time again, right? Uh, maybe they're stuck in their career. Maybe they're stuck professionally. Maybe they're stuck financially, making the same dumb financial choices time and time again. Maybe they're stuck habitually. Uh, they're, they're kind of locked into habits that bring about personal bondage, and they sabotage success or forward progress in life. Is this the Christianity that converts atheists to Christ, that brings them to their knees, understanding that they're sinners in need of a Savior? Is this the Christianity that brings somebody who was raised as a Jew in Israel to the throne of Christ's mercy and grace to be forgiven for their sins, to be baptized into the Christian faith and suffer persecution for their faith. Stuck people, I won't ask you if you're a stuck person. That's way too personal. But raise your hand if you know someone, if you know someone else and they're stuck. Raise your hand if you know someone else. Hands up if you know anybody in your life who's, who's stuck. Raise your hand. Maybe you're with that stuck person right now, right? Right, maybe. Well, listen, I believe God wants to get you very unstuck today. God Did you hear that? I believe that God wants to get you unstuck today. Based on what, David?
where is the big Christian doctrine of the big Mo taught in Scripture? It's not in Joshua at all. So your assertion that God wants to get you unstuck today, I, I'm sorry. The, the only way I can say this is, is that you are either lying on purpose or you are truly deceived. Because there's nothing in Scripture that talks about us getting unstuck. God would like to bless your life with the big mo, with divine momentum. Because the people of God, oh my goodness, they, they were stuck, 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 stuck in this story. And maybe that you, maybe you recognize that momentum is a vital commodity in life, but you're thinking, what do I do when I got no big mo? What do I do when I lose my big mo? Because I want to give you the historical context of this story. I want to give you the biblical backdrop to the book of Joshua. If you back up to, say, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the people of God, the congregation of God, stuck. Stuck, stuck, stuck. They had no semblance of national momentum, whatever. They were a people group with no big mo. Let me kind of give you the backdrop and run the historical numbers, if I may. If you go to, say, the book of Exodus... The people of God, the Hebrews, had been slaves for 400-plus years. Now, when you've been slaves for four centuries, you're stuck. When you're a slave, you have no positive life momentum at all. But then the whole Moses thing happens. God brings Moses on the scene, that amazing leader. And, and there's those miracles, the ten plagues and the Red Sea. And the people of God get unstuck for a little while. But that generation under Moses' leadership, they come to the borderline of the promised land and they balk, you know, they hesitate, they disobey and disbelieve God. And what happens is, well, they spend how long wandering the wilderness? They spend like a week or two, something like 10 days. What was it? It was like a long month. What was it? They spent how long? Who knows? I mean, it was 40 years, 40 years. Now there's 40 years wandering the wilderness. My goodness, I mean, do the math, do the math, that's, that's almost half a millennium. My, my goodness, when you got that much, 400 plus 40, that equals, equals no big mo. No big mo as a nation. They got no. Again, th this is so stupid. Again, I just have to reiterate, claiming that the story of, of the Exodus and then the disobedience and disbelief and lack of faith and the grumbling against God in the wilderness that really you could just chalk this up to no momentum would basically say crucifixions really all of Jesus's crucifixion was all about stopping all kinds of bodily movement. Yeah, it was to make sure that no, that Jesus wouldn't move. He had no momentum on the cross, none whatsoever. He was stuck. No big mo at all. And maybe you're out there going, you know, that's me. I don't have the big mo. I want the big mo, but I got no big mo. Say it with me. I got no big mo. And you think, well, is that me? Is that really why I'm kind of frustrated in life? Is that really why I, I don't have and embrace the things? Is that really why I feel like God has this, this big plan, but I never, never quite latch on it? Is that it? So he's describing symptoms of our sin without describing sin. If you're one of the reasons why we experience the frustrations that we do is a result of the fact that we've completely messed everything up because of our rebellion and sin against God. Momentum isn't the root. Lack of momentum in people's lives, if it's even a valid category, is caused by our sinfulness. 
It's really hard to be honest about your life and appraise your life with accuracy and maybe to, to acknowledge you have no big mo. But maybe if that's you right now thinking, yeah, maybe, maybe I don't have any big mo. David, how can I tell if I got no big mo? Well, I want to help you. I actually have discovered in life and biblically speaking, there are four or five indicators of whether or not someone has no momentum in life. In fact, let me see if I can write some of these down. I found biblically speaking, there are four indicators that somebody doesn't have momentum in life. Are you out of your mind? Which theologians, which church fathers ever talked like this? Did the apostle Peter talk about momentum? Paul, James, Jude, any of those guys, did they ever, oh man, Luke? Found, uh, number one, that people who lack momentum, uh, now sometimes they're, they're lazy people. Sometimes they just, they're just not working. Sometimes if you're just lazy and lethargic in life, that's why you got no big mo. God's divine word to you is get off your butt and get a job and get off the couch. Right now, some of you guys don't have work, but you're, you're looking for a job. That's different. Some people are just lazy. And the Bible warns you against that. Don't be lethargic. Don't be slothful. But other people, other people, listen, have no momentum and they're not lazy. In fact, they're working very, very hard. Here's who you are. Uh, you are, you are busy. You're a busy person, but there's no sense of progress in your life, right? You're, you're busy, but you're not getting anywhere. You're working hard. You're sweating, but you're just not, not getting where you'd like to get. In fact, when I think of you, I think about exercise. Um, the value of cardiovascular exercise. Now, I, I think you should take care of your body. I believe Christian person, don't neglect your body. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So I think you should eat smart, get enough rest, try to avoid stressing out all the time, and you should exercise. I try to exercise about four times a week. Who believes in the value of exercise, especially cardiovascular exercise? Raise your hand if you believe in the value. I didn't say raise your hand if you do it, just if you believe in it. All right, thank you. Hands, hands down. But some of y'all do do it. Some of y'all do cardio. You, in fact, some of y'all do outdoor. Out, I think it's very smart. Outdoor cardiovascular exercise. You run, you jog, you walk, you ride a bike, you rollerblade. What do you, who out there does outdoor cardiovascular exercise? You're faithful to that and hands go up. I don't do that. Because it's like 317 degrees in South Florida in the summer. I don't do that, right? 137% humidity in South Florida. So I do indoor cardiovascular. And it's kind of funny if I think about it. I get in my car and the gym is about a mile and a half from my house. Now, if I would just walk that or run that, that'd probably be enough cardiovascular right there. But I'm leaving a bad carbon footprint on the planet. I, I hop in my car in the air condition. I drive to the gym. And then how many, how many of you guys like me, you do your cardio in the gym. You do your cardio, you do the, the elliptical. Or, come on, hands up, be proud, be proud. You, you go to the gym like me, all right? Here's what we do, here's what we do. Though you're going to go in the gym and sweat and run or walk for like 30, 40 minutes. What do you do? You drive around the parking lot looking for the closest space you can find to the front door to minimize your walk. Why? I don't know why we do I might do that too. I'll drive around looking for a close space so I'm about to walk. But then you go inside and you do hop on the bike. Or you hop on the elliptical or, or whatever, or treadmill, treadmill, treadmill. I think treadmill is kind of a funny thing. I do it, but it's kind of funny. I'll get on that treadmill and I'll work hard and I'll be busy. I'm expending energy. And if you're working so hard in the treadmill, expending all this energy on the treadmill, yet you never really get anywhere, do you? On a treadmill, you never turn a corner, though you're very busy. Somebody, man, that's your life. You have a treadmill existence for life. It's not that you're lazy, you're working hard, you're expending all kinds of energy, but you just feel like you're never really getting anywhere. 
You never turn that corner. So Jesus died on the cross to cure you of your treadmill existence. And that's what the book of Joshua is all about. Yeah, I don't think so. You never make progress. You're going, you know, think about though I'm working hard. Oh, no, I got no big mo. Another indicator is I, I've found people sometimes uh, without any sense of uh, you know, progress after a while might become negative. They become kind of critical. See, see, momentum is frustrating when other people have it and you don't. In fact, the biblical word is they complain or people start to grumble. That's the word you see in the Old Testament. They, they grumble, the people of God, like back in Exodus and following. Uh, when you read about the people grumbling, it showed their lack of faith and trust in God. It was a complete lack of belief in, in, in God. Despite all the miracles he performed, they don't have any faith. It's, it's, it's more than just grumbling. Read the text. Read what Jude wrote about it. Jesus, after saving a people out of, out of the land of Egypt, ended up killing a lot of them because of their unbelief. That's what Jude says. They get negative and they grumble and complain. I know we feel like as Americans, it's our, it's our God-given right to grumble and complain and be negative and point out everything is wrong in the world. And, and let me just tell you, watch out for that. You don't like to hang out with negative people, do you? Don't become one. And if you read the scripture, God takes a very dim view of critical people. The people start to grumble and complain and, and get negative. That's because they have no big mo. Or worse, I have found that sometimes people begin to uh, assess blame. Assess blame. That's another indicator that someone might be lacking life momentum. They assess blame. They, they start looking at other people who are responsible for their situation. Now, listen, it may have a degree of legitimacy. The Israelites could say, yeah, okay, we're stuck. We're stuck. We're stuck for, you know, 400 years and 40 years and we're stuck. We're not, not receiving the promise of God. We're not making the progress as a nation we should, but it's really not our fault. You see, it's really not our fault because, uh, we are the offspring of a highly dysfunctional family. They could have said, hey, uh, we're, we're the ancestor, our ancestor was, was Jacob, you know, we're the offspring of Jacob and Jacob was a bad dad. You read the story. Of Which of the Israelites said that again? Where is this recorded in Scripture? You're just completely making this up. Jacob in Genesis, he was patriarch, but a bad dad. He's married to two women at the same time. Just you know, that is a bad idea. Then on top of the two women at the same time, he had two other women in his life. He's sleeping with had two other, and they had they had kids. And he, two had, so two two wives and two baby mamas, and all kinds of baby mama drama. And uh, had like 12 sons and one daughter. And there's all kinds of infighting, favoritism. I mean, talk about a dysfunctional family. It was a highly dysfunctional family. And the Israelites could say, no wonder we're jacked up. We're from a dysfunctional family. Like, that's why we ended up in Egypt in the first place. Oh, speaking of Egypt, they could say, you know, and the Egyptians for 400 years oppressed. Now, notice you're hearing something that sounds like a Bible story, but it isn't. It's a complete distortion of the biblical meta narrative. Thus, marginalize us. They, they victimize us. See, we're stuck. It's because of the Egyptians. Again, true, legitimate. They could assess blame. And by the way, I don't want to teach on this today. But you recognize that opportunity and oppression often come hand in hand, but that opportunity and opposition. Also come at the same time. I, I found, you know, Christians, we love to talk about the fact that sometimes in your life, God will open a door. I found in my life, yes, God opens doors. And every single time, if God opens the door, 
The devil plants himself in the threshold and tries to body slam me if I go through it. Opportunity and opposition come hand in hand. So they can say, yeah, the Egyptians, the Egyptians. Let me assess blame. It's the Egyptians. We got no big mo, and it's because of our forefathers and because of the Egyptians. It's not really our fault at all. Listen, there's a great degree of truth in all that. But if you're here and you're someone and you can play the blame game, I would warn you against that for this reason. I don't want to even give you a Bible verse. I would just say, practically speaking, it doesn't work. It, here's what I mean. I've never seen anyone ever blame their way to happiness. You ever seen someone like that? Just, you know, hey, blame, blame is working for me. I no longer need coffee in the morning. Blame. So Christianity is all about you finding a way to achieve happiness. That's what Christianity is all about? What about that professor who's being persecuted after converting from Judaism? Is she experiencing happiness in her life as a result of confessing Christ as her Lord and Savior? Blame is working for me so well. You cannot blame your way to happiness or blame your way to joy. You just can't do it. In fact, if you don't believe me, go home, and I challenge you to this experiment. You go home, look in the mirror, and you try to blame someone with a smile on your face. You look in the mirror and go, go, my boss, she is such a jerk. She is the reason I have no success, the reason I'm not getting ahead. It's all my idiot boss. Can't do it. Can't do it. So I would warn you, if you're kind of stuck in that whole blame thing, I'm not saying that people have not hurt you have not marginalized you. Uh, maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional family. Maybe people abused you. I mean, that's terrible. I hate that happened to you. But if you get stuck with the whole blame thing, what happens is blame, if you fixate on blame, turns into people who don't become better. They become bitter. And uh, when, when this happens, you talk about, man, slamming to a stop your forward momentum. If you If you get locked into bitterness... It can break you as a person. You've heard the old cliche that, that bitterness so doesn't work. It's kind of like you drinking poison, hoping that the other person dies. And uh, it, it doesn't work. In fact, you, you stay in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 in just a moment. Hopefully you found it by now. Joshua 1, verse 1 in just a moment. But let me show you a New Testament verse before we get to Joshua. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about bitterness and how problematic bitterness can be and how can they just stop the goodness and blessing of God in your life. Look what it says. Get ready to read. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Stop. God wants to pour his grace into your life, his blessing and favor into your life. So he wants you to have his full measure of grace. So don't come short of, of the grace of God. Ready? That no root of springing up causes trouble. Who wants to bring trouble in their own life? And by it, many be defiled. Interesting. You see, I believe every word in Scripture is there with divine intent. Okay, he, he says he believes that every word in Scripture is there with divine intent. Yet he's not telling you at all, really, the divine intent. He's strip-mining the Scriptures, looking for tips and things that you can apply so that you can be happy. You can experience success. You can have momentum. The, and basically, the Bible's that all about you achieving happiness. It's not what the Scripture is about. The Scripture is about Christ and what he's done for us. David Hughes is absolutely misleading people here. No typos in your Bible. Here it doesn't just say root, root, uh, root, uh, bitterness. It says a root of bitterness. And I was kind of chewing on that verse and that phrase and thought, you know, you ever have like a big plant? Ever, ever have like a big plant or tree in your yard and try to take it out from the roots? 
It's hard. When I was, uh, I was young, man. I was, I was, I was doing the math one. I was uh, 15 because I was hanging out with my buddy, Chris Chico Hunter, sophomore year of high school. And uh, I, I know I wasn't 16 yet because we weren't driving. Once you turn 16, you want to drive all the time. We were on our bikes. We were riding the neighborhood, me and Chico were riding the neighborhood. And it was after a big summer storm and not a hurricane or something, but the storm was sufficiently strong enough. It blew over a bunch of big trees in the neighborhood. We're, we're two 15-year-old kids with no jobs. We're thinking, there's a money-making opportunity here. We start knocking on doors and offering our services to people. Hey, we'll, we'll cut down your tree. We'll take your tree out. We'll drag it to the street, you know. we give us a little money. And no one would say yes. Finally, we went to this yard. And in this lady's backyard, this mammoth tree, this huge honking tree, had blown over and crushed her fence. And we knocked on the door and said, ma'am, we, we'd love to take your tree out. She says, well, how much? And again, this is back when I'm, I'm 15. This is like 1932 or something. I, I said, I said, oh, $200. That's a lot of money back then, but it was a huge tree. She said, how about 150? I said, okay, you give us 50 up front and, uh, and we'll do it. So we had to go rent a chainsaw. In fact, it was long ago the two 15-year-olds could rent a chainsaw. So um, we went and rented a chainsaw and my dad heard about this. My dad got involved to keep us from cutting off our legs or something. And uh, my grandfather started to help and they were kind of impressed. We were out trying to be entrepreneurs and make some money. So with my dad's guidance, man, we worked hard. We worked the better part of a day, cutting down the, the tree and the branches, dragging it to the, to the street. I mean, a huge pile in front of the house. We worked so hard. And, and we left we left a stump. Left a stump about this high and about, about that wide, stumping the roots. And I went and knocked on the door and said, ma'am, we finished the tree. She said, well, how about the stump? I said, well, that's not part of the deal. We just said, said the tree. And uh, she says, okay, okay, I'd love for you guys to take out the stump and the roots. Now, she pays $150 for the tree. And uh, I said, well, we're not going to do it for free. She said, okay, I'll give you uh, 50 bucks. Take out the stump and the roots. She played us so badly. I'm not looking only that high. I thought, well, how bad could that be? Sure, 50 bucks is fine. Told my dad, he about fell said, David, that's a lot of work. We worked for two days. To digging around that thing, pry bars, because you couldn't use the chainsaw in the sand. And accident, we worked so hard. All oh, for system of that unforgiveness. I know someone has harmed you. I know they violated you. I know they victimized you. I know they marginalized you. God, but this verse says, look, the bitterness is like a root system that goes deep into your soul. Will wrap around your heart and your spirit and squeeze the life and the momentum out of you. But here's what I'm believing for you. That today and over the next three weeks, as we study the book of Joshua, God's going to remove that bitterness from your life. He's going to reach down into your heart, remove the root system of that unforgiveness. I know someone has harmed you. I know they violated you. I know they victimized you. I know they marginalized you. God says, by my grace, you forgive them. Because I've done the hard, dirty work on the cross already to empower you. And I want to deliver. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So Jesus did the work on the cross to empower you you from bitterness that poisons your life. I'm believing God for that. I'm liking that. I'm excited that God's going to do that in your life. Amen? Don't leave me hanging. I'm preaching like 65% better than you're responding right now. I'm just saying. All right? So maybe you're looking and you're seeing some of these in, in not just your neighbor or your friend or your brother-in-law or, or you're seeing that maybe in my life, man, I'm, I complain. I'm a negative person. Is that because I have no life, no momentum? I'm, I'm assessing blame. I'm working hard, but I'm not getting, oh no, I got no mo. Notice the problem is, oh no, I'm a sinner and I have earned God's wrath. It's, oh no, I don't have any momentum. My life isn't as happy as I want it to be. 
And uh, that's the exact historical context. You cannot understand this book because God, God doesn't want this to be the case. What does God want for you? His full grace. His full grace. Don't come short of the grace of God. He wants his full grace. Okay, listen to how he's defining grace. Full grace, meaning this. I don't know you perhaps, but I know this about God's attitude towards you. He made you. He loves you. And he desires to favor you. God would love to bless you. God, God wants to favor you. He wants to bless you. God would love to give you divine momentum. God wants you to have progress in life. Here it is. God wants to advance you. God wants to advance you. I love that. God wants to. So God wants to advance you. He wants you to have forward momentum. He wants the same thing you want for your life, momentum and happiness. He's, he, he's ready to bless you. Sign me up. What do I got to do to get that? Advance you. Say that with me. God wants to advance you. One more time. God wants to advance you. Turn to your neighbor right now because they might be a stuck person. Say, do you know God wants to advance you? Go ahead. Turn to your neighbor and say, do you know that God, the God of the Bible wants to advance you? Now turn to the person on your other side. Cause, cause now notice there's no verses that say this, but he's just making this assertion. And he's speaking for God. This is absolutely taking God's name in vain. What he's saying isn't true. It's blasphemy. Because he's looking kind of stuck to me. Say to that person on the other side, do you know that God wants to advance you? God wants to move you forward if you're stuck in life. He wants to do that. And no doubt, the people of God, by the time we get to Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, stuck, 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 stuck. They had no big momentum. And it's about to get worse. In fact, for this to be such a positive, forward-moving, and optimistic book, the first verse and a half, very negative, very negative, very scary for the people of the day. Let's finally get to it. Surely you found it now after 20 minutes. Here it is. Here it is. Verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Joshua. Ready? Here's the way this happy book begins. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid. Ready? Moses, my servant, is... Now, again, again, it's easy to spiritualize these stories, uh, but imagine you're an Israeli back in this time, and as a people group, as a nation, you guys have been stuck for almost half a millennium. And then, you know, the only leaders that the Israelis, Israelis knew at this time in their entire history, they were all 40 and younger, was Moses. Only leader they ever had. And, and as bad as things got, as bad as stuck as they were, they had one ace in the hole, Mo. At least we got Moses. Got Ten Commandments, but the Red Sea, Moses. We got Mo. Wow, Mo. we got Moses. The house the thing begin? He's dead. Oh no, we got no mo. Big mo momentum. Big mo Moses gone. And didn't Israel still have Yahweh? Didn't they still have the Lord? If this book was named for anyone else, if the people had got together and had like a church vote and picked, I don't know, some other guy to be the leader after Moses picked, I don't know, let's, let's pick someone from the tribe of Dan. Let's pick someone from the tribe of Naphtali. Let's pick, uh, let's pick uh, Biff. Biff the Hebrew from Ephraim. Biff is going to be our new leader. Yay, Biff. If the sixth book of your Bible was the book of Biff, this would be the book of give it up. The book of why bother. The book of it's fourth and long, just punt. Or better yet, take a knee and run out the clock. It'd be the book of cash in your chips. Game over, quit, because it's the book of Bith, but it's not the book of Bith, it's the book of Joshua. And God selects this young, courageous, visionary leader committed to doing everything God says to do. And under his leadership, they go in and take name, and they take the land. And I believe God's going to raise up some Joshua's in our midst. Notice, uh, apparently, uh, 
Joshua is the exact same kind of leader that you find uh, being promoted at seeker-driven and purpose-driven leadership conferences. People unafraid to do everything that God calls them to do. Intrepid and visionary leaders, Joshua. See, here's the deal. Moses was Moses. Rarely gifted, highly charismatic, a brilliant leader. And God goes and picks Joshua. Less charismatic, not so gifted, not as flashy as Moses, but he just does and obeys everything God calls him to do. And under this simple, straightforward Joshua, the people go in and take the promised land. Again, the big mo begins to flow under Joshua. And God's going to do the same thing in someone's life. And he's going to turn on divine momentum in your life because you're here and you're listening and going to do what God calls you to do. You're going to become a Joshua. I love this story. I love how God unpacks this. And so God wants to grant to someone or restore to someone momentum. And you can become just like Joshua and have momentum in your life because that's what God wants for you. So someone's going, okay, that's me, David. That's, I, I want that because I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And, and, and we all know stuck people, don't we? You mean, yeah, now what do I got to do to get it? Is, it? is it free or do I have to do something? We know stuck people that just stuck, stuck, stuck people. We know and maybe I'm a stuck person in some area of my life. And you go, I want to get divine momentum. How? How? What do I do? Are there certain things I do that God will bless and, and give me momentum? Yes. In fact, there- oh, man. So where in the Bible does it say, if you do certain things, then God will give you divine momentum? So this is momentum by works, not momentum by grace, which isn't even a doctrinal category, but that's exactly what we're dealing with here. This is all law. This is not the biblical gospel. This is not biblical Christianity. This is you got to do something, and once you do those things, then God will bless you and give you divine momentum. Momentum by works, not momentum by grace. There are four things. There are four things. Listen, it's very important. Four things you must do. And if you do these four things, God will leverage these four things to give you divine momentum. He'll give you his big mo. Are you curious what they are? Would you like to know the four things? Great. I'm going to tell you the four things next week at Church by the Glaze. That's not a okay. So notice that we've got at this point, he's not going to tell you the four things that you've got to do because that's how he's selling this. If you do these four things, then God will give you divine momentum. If then, but uh, you, you got to come next week if you want to hear it. That's one of the reasons why I chose to review this entire series or most of it. So now the 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 hook is baited. You got to come next week. If you want to hear the four things that you have to do, that's what he said. There are things, four things you have to do, and if you do them, then God will grant you and bless you with divine momentum. Dirty trick. I do want you to come back next week, but listen, there is someone you know who needs to be here, right? You got that brother-in-law, man. He can't find a job. He can't. So if you got, if you got somebody who's, that you know who's stuck and doesn't have divine momentum, not that they're a sinner in need of a savior. But somebody who's looking for those four secret things they've got to do so they can get unstuck. You know, they don't have a job. Maybe their relationships are falling apart. Maybe they're stuck in their finances. You know somebody like that. you got to bring them to church so they can do hear these four things and apply them so that they can then earn God's favor and experience divine momentum.
can't, you know, he's stuck. You've got that girlfriend of yours, man. She dates the same bonehead guys all the time, right? You've got that person in life that is negative. They're stuck in negativity and criticism. And God needs to blow them out of that. Other people, they're working so hard, but the things they're working for are not bringing satisfaction. They might have a big house and a nice car and lots of money, but they're not happy. You've got to bring them. And next week, I'll tell you the four things. But listen, I can't tell you the four things yet because you're not ready for them yet. There's one little thing you must understand first. This little thing that philosophically you must lay hold of first, and then you're ready for the four things, all right? So I'm going to wrap today by giving you just the one little thing. You've got to know. The one little thing. It's, it's a one-word idea you must fully understand if you want to get yourself unstuck. It's the word future. Future. Say future. Future. Say it three times. Future, future, future. Okay, David, that hasn't helped yet. How's that get me unstuck? There's somebody here... Something bad's happened to you. you. You've lost something, or maybe even worse, you've lost someone that you really love, you valued, you, you lost something you esteemed. And when you lost this thing in your life, like, er, no momentum. You got stuck. You, this, this bad thing happened, and, and you might complain about it, and you might assess blame, and it's maybe made you kind of bitter and ugly, but no momentum, no big mo. When this, you lost this bad thing, when you, you thought, you know, I mean, life was tough, but as long as I had this one thing, it was going to be okay. But someone took that thing from me, or I lost that thing, or, or maybe maybe you lost that person. They broke up with you, or they divorced you, or they dumped you, or, or they died on you. And uh, so, again, put yourself back in the sandals of an Israeli in this generation. And they're thinking, wow, we've been slaves for 400 years, and then we wandered in the wilderness the past generation. And here we think we're going to make it. And oh, no, we got no big Mo. Moses has died. Give it up. So what does God do in verse 1? By the way, we've not made it very far. We've got 24 chapters to cover in the next three weeks. We're a verse and a half into this bad boy, all right? What does God do in the first verse and a half? God says, God speaking, says, guess what? Moses, my servant, is dead. Yeah, people, Moses is dead. Epic Moses, iconic Moses. Yeah, Ten Commandments, put the Red Sea, Moses. The leader of leaders, Moses. Second only to Jesus, Moses is dead. He's so impressive that 2,000 years from now, Charlton Heston will have to play him in the movie. Moses is dead. Moses is dead. Moses is, oh no, you got no big mo. Moses is dead. Here's the new guy, Joshua. By the way, people look at Joshua and go, he ain't no mo. He wasn't. Not as flashy, not as gifted. What God is almost saying is, look, look. I know Moses is gone. Moses is cool. Moses is with me. Moses is in heaven with me. He's, he's in glory. Moses is fine. But I don't need Moses in your life to get this thing done. Something new. Something transitional. Something a little different. But I'm going to bring about my glory and my work through this new thing in your life. New thing. Moses is dead. You know what my career plans are, in case you're curious, kind of random, my career plans. Someone's asking, you, David, you got, you know, some pastor friends in bigger churches. Ever submit your resume? Ever flip that out there? Ever want like a bigger, more? No way. Man, if God allows, if you allow, I'd love to love and lead church by the glades until I retire. Man, I love this church. I'm staying right here. Oh, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, in fact, in fact, if you allow me, I, I don't even know if I want to retire. I think I want to preach in this church till I die. I want to preach till I die. Then, then I want to preach my own funeral. I want to preach my own funeral. When the funeral's done, I'll crawl in the box and you bury me then. And then when all that happens, and all that happens, when I die, you know what you should do, church? Pick a new guy. Pick a new guy. Pick, you know, the, the next, next guy that God chooses and you love him and you follow him because God doesn't need me to get this thing done. God doesn't need any of us to get this thing done. God is God. And he wants to 
forward move his people. He wants to grant them divine momentum. So for the people that day, it freaked them out. The Mo, oh no, no big Mo, Mo got Joshua. Not to worry. Got this thing. We're going to take the land with Joshua. So when I, I, you know, if it happens 30 years from now or I get hit by a bus tomorrow, pick a new guy. By the way, my 10-year-old Charlie wants to offer his resume. He told me to tell you all that uh, he's a little young. He'd like to be the next pastor if that's okay with God and you at Church by the Glades. And you think, wait, wait, wait. You think I got big dreams? I'm showing Charlie that giant building here on the Sawgrass campus. And he's not too impressed. He said, Daddy, if I'm the pastor someday, I'm buying the Bank Atlantic Center is what I'm going to do. Wait. And dad, the mall, because, you know, we buy the mall next to it when he places it for the kids and stuff. So he's going to buy Bank Atlantic and the mall. But he said, you might want to not tell the church because people in our church work for Bank Atlantic Center or the mall. They might be afraid they're going to lose their jobs. It's all good. So vision, got to have that vision. Because there's somebody here and, 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 and you, you, future, 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 you, you think it's done because you have lost something or someone uh, that you value and you think that's it, game over for me. But I heard this teaching, you're thinking to yourself, you know, 20 years ago, wow. Or 20 weeks ago. If I heard even, even in 20 days ago, but you know, since I've lost this thing, or I've done this stupid thing and, and I'll never have a future. I'll never just, I'm done. I'm telling you, you have a future. And by the way, the future I'm talking about is not like, yeah, someday, someday things will be better. Someday, someday. No, no, no. I mean, the future like 15 seconds from now, future. And God has a future for you. God wants to give you his momentum. And how do I know, how do I know if he has a future for you? Exercise. Okay, now listen carefully. He's going to rip that passage from Jeremiah out of context. I've covered it so many times over the past few weeks here at Fighting for the Faith. I'm not going to do it right now. Go and read it in context. That passage is not a universal promise. It's a promise to the exiles, uh, those who were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. It is not a promise universal given to every believer. A little exercise for everyone. Everyone could do this. Everyone do. Let it out. Let it out. Do it again. Well, I hope you brush your teeth today. All right. This is good hygiene. Hygiene for the church. It's good, good fellowship. Um, but if you could do that, if you're breathing, God is a future for you. I know you've done some stupid stuff or someone has violated you or you've lost something. You're thinking, no, I, I don't. I've missed my window. No, God is a future for you. I, I know he does. I don't know you. You might think it's, you know, audacious that I would say this. No, I, I got a verse. You say in Joshua chapter 1, let me turn a few books to the right, Jeremiah. Look what God promises. God is a speaker in Jeremiah 29. Yes, and God is speaking directly to the exiles in Babylon. Here's what God... Read it. Go read it in context. God says... I know the plans I have for you. It's not your selfish plan, your small plan. It's a divine plan. I know the plan I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to, what's it say? Prosper you. Thank you. It's not in red, but it is, it's important. He wants to prosper you, move you forward, give you momentum, to bless you, to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you. We're going to talk about hope next week. Hope is huge. Hope next week. Hope and a. Say it again. And a got a future. God says, I'm going to give you a future. I'm going to do great things in your future. God wants to give you the big mo. He wants the big mo to be on in your life. All right. God wants to give you big mo. Will you trust God for it? So you go, okay, David, great, great. So I come back next week for how many things, how many things? So God wants to give you big mo when you trust God for big mo, not for salvation, not for forgiveness of sins, but you're trusting God for big mo based upon this Jeremiah passage ripped out of context. 
things next week. How many things? I'll bring my stuck friend with me because they need to hear the four things next week. Very important. They hear the four things. Uh, and then, then David, I guess I get to kind of pick what area of my life gets unstuck first. No. I mean, you wish, don't you wish? Because that's the way some of you guys track. You're so fixated in that one stuck area. Again, maybe you're a single person here and uh, you're single and go, man, when I get married someday, when I get married, you know, pastor, when I meet that godly woman someday, then I'm a, my life will get moving. My life will begin to happen. Uh, when I meet that, that guy, when I meet that, that holy hunk at Church by the Glades and we get married, then, or when I graduate finally, when I wrap up my academic career, or when, you know, the kids get out of the house, then, no. You don't get to pick the area. Financially, professionally, God picks the area. And when you take advantage of what God's placed in front of you, then he might give you the next area of momentum in your life. Uh, when you do, then God might. This is a capricious God. And by the way, God's word doesn't teach any of this. All of this is just pure conjecture. Assertions based on that are not taught in God's word at all. In fact, if you're here, listen, 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 I'm going to close up. If you're here thinking there's no momentum anywhere in my life, there's nothing moving forward in my life, I'm frustrated because nothing, not relationally, not habitually, not professionally, not by nothing's moving. Look, look, all right, look, if you're part of our church or you've been here more than two weeks and you're thinking, I, I got nothing in my life with momentum, nothing with progress in my life, you've been here more than twice and that's you. And you're thinking that, I love you, but you're as dumb as a bag of hammers. In Jesus' name, I'm just saying. Because if you think there's nothing moving forward, and you're a first-time guest, that's fine. But if you're here and you've been around for a little bit, just look around. Just look around. Oh, my goodness. The people of God are moving forward. What God is doing in this house, he is moving forward. What God is doing amongst these people. I'm not talking about a giant building or a new campus. I don't know what God is doing in the lives in this house. What God is doing in this church, rare air. What God is doing in this place has been so profoundly powerful. The momentum he's granted to church by the glades. And you have a rare opportunity to be part of that, to be involved in that, to show up and be faithful and, and to volunteer and serve in something that exciting, to be a player, not a spectator. So, yeah, the heat, the heat picked up, you know, LeBron. And Bosch, and we keep D-Way. That's awesome. And now they're looking for some role players, some other guys. They spend all the big money. So some guys will play for lesser salaries. Of course, a lesser NBA salary is like a squillion dollars still. But they're looking for some lesser guys to play their role. I wish they'd call me. I wish Pat Riley would just call me. Now, it had to be a part-time job for me because I'm, I'm the pastor here. But I'd, I'd play. I'd play a little defense. I'd, I'd take some outside. I'd, I'd foul somebody, man. I wish they'd play me. I'd love it because what's going to happen? They're going to take championships. And why be a spectator when you be on the team, be on the floor? And God's calling you for the same thing. God's calling you to be a player here, to be involved here, because God is moving in his house. He's moving among his people. And then, then if you take advantage of what God is doing here at Church by the Glade, you immerse yourself in this, then he might start to work in your life relationally or financially. He might grant you momentum in your professional endeavors. One if, if you do, then God might. If you do, then God might. This is all works righteousness and law. One after another, but you start with the house of God. I'm being biblical right here. In this story, scholars estimate there are probably two million individual Hebrews. The population of Israel, about two million strong. And God has a heart for individuals. God wanted to prosper and bless with hope and a future every single individual 
Man, woman, boy, girl in Israel. Every, every, every single, every senior, every student, everyone. God wanted to bless every individual person, and he did so in a congregational context. That's the way he always works. He blesses individuals, but in the context of a faith nation, in a domination. They didn't go take the land as a bunch of individuals. They did it trusting God as a nation. We are a faith nation, a domination, I dare say. We will take the kingdom like that together. Don't miss what God is doing. God is moving in our lifetime in this church. So uh, for about the better part of two weeks, Lisa and I were at the, the Hillsong Church Conference in Sydney, Australia. This explains something. Hillsong, by the way, is heretical. Flat out, word faith, heretical. Prosperity gospel, heretical. Yeah, my mouth open too. I was very excited to get the invite. It was, Hillsong is, is generating some of the greatest church music in our generation. Uh, great, a lot of, we sing a ton of their songs. But, uh, man, the leadership and the anointing on that church is so profound. Uh, you know, we're trying to, to put a campus on the other side of town. They have put campuses. Their mothership is in Sydney. They have campuses right now in Kiev and in London and in Paris and in Cape Town, South Africa. And they're coming to New York right now. I mean, they're spreading their DNA around the world. We're trying to go across town. And, and so it's the largest church conference in the world. We got a special invite. Uh, we met in an arena. There were 27,000 Christians from all over the world. I mean, the guy over here is from South Africa. The person here is from Uganda. Some over here is from South America. Here's a guy from New Zealand over here. All different ages, you know, old people, middle-aged people, very young people in the house. And the worship music was electric. The environment was so incredible. The teachers were lights out. And I'd been to some, you know, venues with great excitement before. Man, once, once upon a time, someone gave me tickets for the Super Bowl, and that was very exciting. I got a chance to check out a World Series a time or two. Very exciting. I've never been in an environment with more energy than this church conference. It was crazy. Thousands of people praising God, celebrating God, people teaching the word of God, people hungry to hear what God was saying. And almost everyone caught up in the excitement. It's night number one, and and we're all just so dialed into the teaching. The worship has been so incredibly engaging. And my wife elbows me, and she says, look behind us at those three teenage boys. I'm ready to see three teenagers just studying the Word of God, just soaking the whole thing. I look back and hear three teenage boys. Two of them are texting. And one kid, he's just sleeping in church. Now, when you sleep in church, try to be subtle. This boy was doing this. Uh, He's drooling. He's snoring. Now, I met him later. They were three great kids. Probably just had a little jet lag or something distracted. But I looked back and I laughed for a moment. And then I thought, they're missing it. They're missing it. They're they're missing what God is doing. They're missing what God is doing in the house. They're missing that God is moving in this place. They're missing missing it. And I I thought as I prepared this week, we got people here at Church by the Glades. You're wide awake, but you're sleeping through what God is doing. You're saying, God, would you please put some momentum somewhere in my life? And God said, are you seeing your church? It's right in front of you. You're spectating. You need to be a player at your church, involved at your church, part of what God is doing. Because I want to bless you individually, but I'll do it in a congregational context. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the greatest thing on the planet. We are the hope of the world. Oh, yeah, I'm jacked up and highly addicted to the church. Will you join me as part of the church? We are it. It is the church. We are the faith nation. We are the domination. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for you. We are the church. We're the big thing. And, oh, by the way, we have the name Jesus attached to us.
All right, that was sermon number one in the series, and uh, I'm going to do more, at least one, possibly two more in this series, because I want you to hear what's being passed off as a biblical sermon, and it's not. Got a supreme problem in the church today, folks. Christ has, I mean, he's doesn't even get cameo appearance. He gets, he gets uh, some kind of a, well, uh, an honorable mention in sermons. But it's all about you, and apparently God's your big genie in the sky who wants to make you happy. It's all about you getting unstuck and God giving you momentum, but you have to do the four important things first, and then God might bless you. That's pure law. That's not gospel. That's not the hope of the world. That's not repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's works righteousness. Pure, unadulterated works righteousness. And that's not what God's word teaches at all. Mm, Pray for these people. Pray. All right. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What would you think? Love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till Thursday, I'm out of, I'm out speaking tomorrow, and Thursday I'll be back. Until Thursday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.